0: Welcome to Tech Empire. I'm Michael Quet, joined by Siamo Malachi. And today, we welcome Fatima Hassan to discuss vaccine apartheid in the global movement to end it. Fatima is a South African human rights lawyer, social activist, and founder of the Health Justice Initiative. Fatima, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. It's great.
0: So in this episode, we're going to dig into the issue of vaccine apartheid, including uh, topics like vaccine patents, the People's Vaccine Alliance, the Omicron travel bans, and the role of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Before we continue, none of the people on this show take money from Bill and Melinda Gates.
2: Or will ever take money from Bill and Melinda Gates.
0: Right. So I just want to throw that out there because um, they're everywhere. Right. Um, so um, a quick note, Tech Empire is part of the Yale uh, uh, Podcast Network. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes and YouTube. Our Twitter account is at Tech Empire Cast. Um, So Fatima, let's start with the, a basic question. What is vaccine apartheid?
1: So vaccine apartheid is a system where you have a prioritization of limited vaccine supplies for people in countries in the global north. And you create a system whereby people in the global south have to wait and wait and wait. So what we've seen in the last 15 months is basically you know, the clearest illustration of vaccine apartheid, where vaccine supplies were prioritized for people who were able to order in advance or, what we call uh, in, enter into advanced market commitments. And they were able to basically clear the shelves and use all of those supplies for their population or their countries first, to the exclusion of healthcare workers and people at risk in the global south. So, the situation of vaccine apartheid has resulted in only about 7% of people being fully vaccinated in Africa. As at the beginning of December 2021, whereas in other parts of the world, you're looking at coverage of maybe ranging between 40 to 80 percent, while those countries are now administering booster shots, even though people in Africa haven't even had their first shot.
2: Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, over 8 billion doses already administered around the world. I suppose the follow-up question to that is, you know, these countries that are giving out boosters, that are administering vaccine date. sometimes their leaders release statements saying things like, okay, we're going to donate to Africa. There were multiple initiatives that were created with global bodies to try and give vaccines. Why did all of those fail? And why did the words of the global leaders, why did they go back on their work?
1: So... I mean, I think that's a great question because in the beginning of the pandemic, we warned based on the lessons we learned in the HIV AIDS crisis that offers of solidarity and donation and pleasures, oh, sorry, offers of donation and solidarity and pledges are not enforceable. Unless you have enforceable guarantees, then nice statements and PR statements and ribbon cutting ceremonies are actually going to result in deliveries into the places where they need it the most. So what we have is a situation where of the 8 billion doses of vaccines already administered in the world, the majority of that has actually gone to high-income countries. And there's data and reports that indicate that, uh, with a very small percentage actually going to low-income countries. And that, I think, is a travesty. It's an illustration of vaccine apartheid and vaccine injustice. So when you talk about the donations and pledges, so let me just say that again. When you talk about the donations and pledges, we're looking at two different um, streams here. The first is your ordinary donations and pledges, which uh, mostly have been conveyed by G7 countries, but have actually not fully materialized. Our data and the work of the People's Vaccine uh, Alliance globally indicates that only about 20% of those promises have actually been met by the end of this year. So there's a lot of global leaders who are trying to take credit for promises that they've made, but actually they haven't really honoured those promises. So there's a huge shortage of the supplies that were promised through a donation stream by these richer nations. The second way in which these pledges or donations or promises were supposed to materialise and that you've correctly sort of identified as having failed, is the mechanism called COVAX, which was supposed to be a mechanism that would also allow low-income countries to be able to draw on a pooled uh, mechanism of supplies. And COVAX has had to reduce its forecast of even uh, very low targets for 2021 by by a further 500 million because the companies and the countries that had made promises to put supplies into the COVAX machinery have actually not met those um, promises or pledges. So COVAX is unable to deliver on time the number of supplies that you need. Uh, the countries that have made promises through like G7 or G20 have not met those promises uh, or their pledges either. And bilateral agreements that countries entered into, if they have the resources to do that in Africa in particular, are still waiting for supplies that they've actually paid for. Why why has the world failed? Because frankly, I think that actually nobody really cares about black and brown people in parts of Africa and Latin America and Asia. Uh, That's the only reason why... There is a 7% vaccination rate in Africa. If the world was really concerned about all of us being in this pandemic together and that we were really walking off each other, global solidarity, we would be seeing a very different situation. Just today, we've had global leaders saying that our president in South Africa, who's called out vaccine apartheid as being dramatic, we've had the CEO of a pharmaceutical company saying that the DG of the WHO is being too emotional. When he talks about vaccine apartheid. So, this is the systemic structural realities we're dealing with. Nobody wants to accept responsibility. Everybody wants the credit and everybody wants the profit.
0: Now, there's a, um, if we were to back up for a second, right? Um, This broke out in China, as far as we know, uh, December 2019, and it quickly uh, became a, a global pandemic. And at that point, there was obviously the question, well, what are we gonna do? There was the question of developing a vaccine. Um, And in the process of doing that at the outset, um, there was a recommendation for pooling technology and um, the scientific results behind a vaccine. Um, You had just mentioned COVAX. but there was another uh, proposal, um, if I'm from memory here, it was called CTAP. And, um, and what won out was COVAX. In particular, um, Bill Gates and, and, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation were pushing very hard for protecting intellectual property behind the vaccines. So, can you um, tell us a little bit about um, what happened at that moment in time? and um, what your thoughts are on this controversy behind um, waiving intellectual property patents behind um, the uh, vaccines.
1: Okay, so I think there's three parts to that question. Let's deal with the IP part and the proposal to waive intellectual property provisions during this pandemic, which was actually a proposal that was jointly made by the governments of India and South Africa already in October of 2020. So given what we've learned with the HIV AIDS crisis and how if you don't deal with the stranglehold of intellectual property, particularly patents, I mean there are other elements to intellectual property including copyright and trade secrets etc, but if you don't deal with that basket of intellectual property protections all at once for all medical technologies that could actually save lives in this pandemic, then you would have the result that we have right now, which is, you know, gross inequity and gross disparities in access to supplies. Because if you, for example, have to vaccinate billions of people around the world at the same time, not with one shot, but maybe two shots, but maybe three shots, you need to have as many manufacturers as possible in the system to be able to help you to make those vaccines. And you can't do that if the knowledge is not shared. And the knowledge usually resides in a patent or in a copyright or in some intellectual property claim. Even though in this particular case, in this pandemic, we had accelerated vaccine research, which was funded by public money. And so this is the irony of this pandemic when we were offered solidarity and we were told that the vaccine in particular would be treated as a public good, that you socialize the risk of researching the vaccines. But then you privatize access. So how did we get to the point of privatizing access? Well, a few things. The one is this you know, inexplicable fixation with prioritizing intellectual property rights over human life. And that, that is why we have the situation that we have right now of vaccine inequity. And we we are going to see that with treatment, and we're already seeing that with access to PPE, access to diagnostic test kits, access to ventilators, for example. So the idea was that you would put public investment on the table and that everybody would share the knowledge. But the opposite happened because pharmaceutical companies are not interested necessarily in actually saving lives. They're interested in saving some lives. And I think that's the heart of of, where we're at. And so in saving some lives and not all lives, they are interested in making sure that they have control over the means of production, that they have exclusive control, it's what we call exclusivity, of markets, of data, of pricing, et cetera. And they get to make all the decisions. So I've said before on multiple occasions, we have four or five white men in the North Who are the CEOs of these pharmaceutical companies who are playing guard in this pandemic. So they got to have the ability to make key material decisions which has affected the entire world. So how has this happened? When you talk about CTAP, the idea behind CTAP was, well we'll invest in all of this research. We're all in this together in this particular pandemic. We all want to get out of the pandemic at the same time. So why don't we set up a mechanism that pools the technology? People will come towards CTAP, they will provide the technology and everybody will benefit and share from that. For 18 months or close to two years, we, we didn't have a single company voluntarily agreeing to come into CTAP. We've just recently had an announcement by the Spanish government to finally give some technology on uh, diagnostic capabilities. So that is the only um, technology transfer that we have within the CTAP mechanism. Uh, in addition to CTAP, you have COVAX being set up by similar partners, including by uh, you know, very wealthy individuals, philanthropists, who also put some money into vaccine research, which explains why they get to be king makers in this particular pandemic. Um, Unlike, for example, somebody like Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton Foundation puts money into vaccine research, but has not insisted on making decisions around licensing or exclusivity. So COVAX is a very different mechanism. COVAX is like a pool procurement mechanism, a tiered pricing system for three different types of countries, high income, middle income, low income. And the idea was that you would pool procurement and then of available supplies, you would allocate them equitably to the different parts of the world and you would donate the supplies to low-income countries if they couldn't afford it. The problem that happened is that richer countries then signed their advanced uh, purchase orders or advanced market commitments and drew on supplies from COVAX because COVAX doesn't require you to share the technology. It's totally based on voluntary cooperation. We have companies who have made promises to COVAX who haven't even delivered a single dose that they said that they would to COVAX. So there's no repercussion for you if you don't honor your commitments to COVAX. And similarly, CTAP is based on a voluntary cooperation system. The the third uh, measure that was then subsequently introduced was when we had a lot of pushback around sharing the technology with partners in the global South, The first thing we heard, which is what we heard in HIV AIDS, were these very racist views that Africa can't produce anything. It won't be of high quality, uh, that it's not so easy to make a vaccine. You can't just easily, you know, do a copy of an mRNA vaccine in Africa, Latin America and Asia. So the WHO, uh, in fact, embarked on a process where they invited expressions of interest. And that is how we got to the process of setting up the first WHO mRNA hub in South Africa, but guess what? For two years, not a single company has voluntarily come with the knowledge or the technology into the hub. So we are going to have to reverse engineer some of those uh, intervention and take longer to be able to also scale up production of, of vaccines. So, so when we talk about, you know, what happened and how did this all go so belly up? It's because we relied on a system and a market that has never served our needs before. It's never served the needs of poor people in in low-income parts of the world. And we assume that people would be benevolent. We assume that there would be voluntary cooperation. We Assume that with public investment, all of the money that the US government put on the table, all of the money that the UK government, the German government, that you wouldn't have drug companies contesting whose IPTs. What do we have right now? A dispute between Moderna and the US government around who actually owns the Moderna NIH vaccine. We call it the NIH vaccine. Moderna calls it the Moderna vaccine. But they are the ones who have made billions in profit, you know, in the the last year. So so that is where we're at in terms of the contestation of IP and why the waiver was so important. Just just the final point on the waiver is that 110 countries, mostly from the developing world, support the waiver. It has now at least 67 co-sponsors. But guess what? It's blocked by the very countries that are giving booster shots. It's blocked by the very countries that are now banning us from travel and blaming us for the emergence of new variants. And it's blocked by the countries who are really not generally concerned about trying to get timely supplies of vaccines to to Africa.
2: Yeah, thanks for all that clarity. I think the core of that, if you rely on voluntary contributions from people that have power to the powerless, you're doomed to fail. And one wonders if we had a bit more bargaining power at the time when South Africa, for instance, was volunteering to participate in trials. But I'd also like to hear your thoughts on this new agreement between Aspen and j Is it something to look forward to? Is it a Trojan horse? Is it a myth? Is it being overstated? You know, um, you're speaking about reverse engineering as well, a vaccine. Do you think that's something we could do? Could we work towards that we've seen lessons from cuba is that something optimistic and something you think we should be putting more energy into instead of the waiver and begging for permission from these large pharmaceuticals
1: yeah so so the waiver is a critical element of our response to this pandemic and you know we certainly don't see it as a begging bowl it's perfectly permissible within the rules of the trips agreement and we can debate around whether the TRIPS is actually serving our purpose during the time of a pandemic. We don't think it is, and we think it's time for reform at the WTO, and we need greater systemic reform. But the waiver is a permissible mechanism under the rules of the TRIPS. Agreement. So it's not begging. It's asking to be able to use the very rules that are available, which other countries have used when they face some kind of emergency, but are precluding the Global South from using in, in, in the time of a public health emergency. And you know, these are some of the concessions that we won. Won in the, these are some of the concessions that we won in the HIV/AIDS battle through what's called the Dur Declaration, and about the ability of countries to use flexibilities so that you can respond to a public health emergency. So let's look at the J&D situation. When when you ask the question about, uh, well, why has everything failed, and and why haven't we had widespread access? It's precisely because of the conduct of companies like Johnson and Johnson. So. Johnson & Johnson decides that they will be able to serve the world with their vaccine, that it's a vaccine that everybody should use. They do clinical trials in South Africa. They test it for some healthcare workers, for example. Uh, there's been some issues around starting you know, the, the rollout, pausing the rollout. But the bottom line is that Johnson & Johnson decides that they're not gonna share the technology with anybody. They're gonna hoard this knowledge during this pandemic. And, and in doing so, they have obviously made billions and billions in profit. But what they will do is rely on a handful of companies around the world to fill and finish the vaccine for them. So when you fill and finish, you don't actually have the full technology transfer. And that's what we mean by partial licensing. So it's a very convenient way for Johnson & Johnson to say, but... We've given you a deal in South Africa, but when you look at the terms of it, and remember, nobody's seen the contracts because these are all subject to high levels of secrecy and non-disclosure agreements. So it doesn't really bode well for a functioning democracy anywhere in the world. Um, so what Johnson & Johnson does is it says to Aspen, we'll select you as a partner. Nobody else in Africa, you know, not, not many other countries in the global South, Johnson & Johnson decides on their own they will choose Aspen, Aspen will fill and finish, they decide the volumes, they decide the prices, and they importantly decide the market. So when we say we're not doing cartwheels about that license arrangement, this is the reason why. In deciding the markets, Johnson & Johnson then has the power and authority to decide the vaccines that are filled and finished in South Africa will first go to where. So we are entering wave three, we are waiting for supplies, the Global North is getting vaccinated. I'm talking of mid-2021. And Johnson & Johnson is unable to deliver vaccine supplies to us on a speedy basis, in a timely basis, according to the contract that we've signed with them. We've paid them for vaccines because of two reasons. The contamination issue that it's dealing with in Baltimore, because it's not allowing Aspen to produce the drug substance. It's not a full-manufacturing license. But what and what is Can doing, I just
0: ask, just real quick, can Aspen, can you just fill the audience in on okay. um, this relationship? Yeah,
1: Yeah. so Aspen is a pharmaceutical company in South Africa that has previously you know, been able to manufacture HIV, TB, malaria medicines as well, and it supplies uh, countries in Europe, countries in sub-Saharan Africa, so it's a well-established pharmaceutical company. Um, but it's hand-picked by Johnson & Johnson, and so Aspen is filling and finishing vaccines in the Eastern Cape during this time. And we are not getting our supplies in Africa or in South Africa, despite paying, sign the contract. So we're not even begging for donations. We paid and we want our contract to be honored. They take the full and finish vaccines and they export them to Europe. And that is what we mean by having exclusive control over the terms of the arrangement, where they have the power to decide even though your country is going through a wave three, even though you're facing a new variant, even though you really need access to urgent supplies. The New York Times broke a story which showed that for months, millions of vaccines had actually left South Africa to go to Europe. So the latest announcement, Yama, around the Aspen-J&J deal is that for more than a year, they are negotiating about when Aspen will actually get a full manufacturing license, which would give Aspen more control and authority around um, where the supplies would go to, uh, how to actually deal with allocation and distribution, and a range of other things. But the the most recent announcement indicates that that is where they're going towards, but it hasn't as yet been finalized. And the outstanding issue there is that there still seems to be uh, a question around whether Espen would be able to finish uh, finish it in a full way, and by that I mean actually make the drug substance. Now, that is just one example of how pharmaceutical companies have tried to exert control in this pandemic. If Johnson & Johnson was really interested in equity and scaling up access, they would have given multiple manufacturing licenses on a non-exclusive basis They maybe would have taken the technology to CTAP. They would have you know, cooperated with the WHO in a more meaningful way. But that is not what they've done, which is why we only have Johnson & Johnson uh, with Aspen, who is now meant to supply the whole of Africa with about 220 million vaccines in the next few months. So when you look at why have supplies not come into Africa, the j aspen deal is one of the reasons, because we've been drip-fed by J&J, and if you only give one license to one company on a partial basis, it's almost impossible for for Aspen to meet those targets, uh, you know, anytime soon. Sorry, there was another question you asked around. It was changing. Cuba,
2: Espen. Cuba, and reverse engineering. Oh, reverse
1: engineering. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think what we what we need to understand is that. Um, the mRNA hubs are looking at the mRNA vaccine platforms. And so there we're talking about the conduct of Moderna and Pfizer and BioNTech, because those are the mRNA-based vaccines. And again, like the Johnson & Johnson situation, Pfizer and BioNTech are refusing to cooperate with the mRNA hub and refusing to come in and share the technology in the mRNA hub. So do we have the ability to reverse engineer? Our scientists are saying yes. So the scientists who work from Afrigen, who are one of the partners of the mRNA hub, which has been set up by the WHL, the South African government, and a few other governments are contributing funds towards that, um, are saying that they will be able to do it, but it will take longer. It will take longer, they predict, because you don't have the cooperation of a company like Moderna, and I think years where the really pernicious conduct of these private companies come to the fore. Moderna says at the beginning of this pandemic, this is why we say it should always be enforceable, we are not going to enforce patents. So everybody, you know, congratulates Moderna for being so forward-thinking in saying that it won't enforce patents during this pandemic. It will decide when the pandemic is over. That's the first problem. But while it states that and while it's in a dispute with the U.S. government around whose IP that really is, because uh, the U.S. government says it was their scientists, public scientists from public institutions and the NIH who co-invented that vaccine. So what Moderna does is it starts registering patents in South Africa, even though it claims it won't enforce it. And it's done so carefully and strategically that it's not revealing a lot. So it makes it very difficult for the mRNA hub, which ironically is actually based here in Cape Town down the road from me, to be able to do the reverse engineering. Now, would we have been in a different situation if in February of this year, (laughs) Pfizer and Moderna said, we'll give you the technology, let's share it for the benefit of the world. Of course, we would have been in a different situation. And the waiver would have helped with that. The explicit technology transfer and cooperation and not the hoarding of knowledge uh, would would obviously have helped. So, So we believe the hub can do it and that there are other manufacturing partners as well, which is why, for example, companies like Merck and Pfizer are now relying on manufacturers, for example, in India. So it's AstraZeneca. There is capacity in the global south, and there is manufacturing ability. It's about whether these companies are actually willing to let go of control and and of their IP. Sorry, um, I want a very technical answer.
0: Yeah, I mean, so let's 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 dig deeper into this um, intellectual property thing. So, um, Bill Gates uh, penned an op-ed at CNN in October, and he said, "Look." The intellectual property isn't like a recipe where you have one company, A, that you um, can give the recipe to company B. He said um, manufacturing uh, vaccines often involves living organisms, anything from bacteria to chicken eggs, and these things don't necessarily act exactly the same way every time. and um, and even an experienced vaccine maker might not be able to simply take another's recipe and replicate it reliably. And he goes on to say it was a second source deal with AstraZeneca, not an IP waiver, that allowed um, uh, Serum Institute in India to produce 100 million COVID-19 doses at very low cost and in record time, and that broadly waiving IP protections would not meaningfully increase the supply of vaccines, Um, supply has been limited not because of IP rules, but because there aren't enough factories capable of handling the more complicated process of making vaccines. Um, So obviously, IP, what comes to mind is a recipe for the actual vaccine, but there are other things that patents cover. And as you mentioned, trade secrets and copyrights Um, You know, so when we're looking at and then also at the World Trade Organization, the WTO, which we've been talking about um, and looking at the uh, waiver, um, the Biden has come out in favor of a waiver. But the EU has recently said that they want a narrow waiver. That's uh, a few uh, about a week or so ago. Um, So can you address what Bill Gates is saying there? about the limit the, the non-value to, in his eyes of intellectual property here, the factories and what it, you know what the, the, it encompasses um, altogether the intellectual property, and why the EU would be saying let's have a narrow waiver.
1: Okay, so let's just start with the EU first. The EU is flip-flopping on its position. They've been the key blockers of the trip's waiver. In the middle of the pandemic, they said, well, forget what 100 countries are saying on the TRIPS waiver, why don't you go the third way, which is actually a way, a ruse, basically, to delay the passing of the TRIPS waiver. Um, and so the EU came up with this proposal, which is called the EU Third Way around using compulsory licensing. Now, we can go into a whole critique of that, but the EU is basically delaying the finalization of the TRIPS waiver. There are few countries that are instrumental in blocking the TRIPS waiver. Uh, and not listening to the global south. And the EU has exercised, you know, a disproportionate amount of power in this pandemic. Uh, they've benefited excessively from these IP protections and the overordering. And in fact, you know, they've already ordered all their booster shots. So the EU is not our ally. They are on the wrong side of history. Um, and frankly, you know this, this new proposal of it of an even narrower waiver is is just really really incredulous given the amount of deaths that we had and the amount of suffering and 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 the dire situation of the lack of supplies. Now let's go to that very uh, unpopular infamous. Um, uh, let's go to the unpopular infamous op-ed by Volgate.
0: And just real quick before you do that. Um... What makes the EU waiver narrower? I mean, what comes to mind to me is is when you have a patent, right? usually you disclose your finding and then you have an exclusive right to it. So when I'm thinking of a vaccine patent, um, if Moderna or whoever has already made this vaccine, they've disclosed the secret sauce to the public. It's just that you can't make use of it. Um, If when I'm thinking of a waiver at the WTO, I'm thinking that um, you're, you're waiving all those rights. What is narrow about, um, what is the EU saying? We don't want full um, um, you know, uh, waiver of rights that um, only partial, but what is the partial part that they're um, advocating for?
1: So like I said, the EU keeps changing its position. The way we understand it is that it doesn't want a a waiver on all the medical technologies, which is similar to what Biden said, that he would only support a waiver in relation to vaccines, but not in relation to all the other COVID-19 technologies, which would include, for example, ventilators, PPE, diagnostics, and treatment, right? And treatment, is going to become the issue for 2022. So this year has been vaccine apartheid, and I predict that 2022 will be treatment apartheid, so while you will be able to benefit from Merck and Pfizer's antivirals many people in the Global South will be excluded from those licensing arrangements or won't be able to access them timely or in an affordable way. So, um, you know, and, and prior to this narrow waiver that you was talking about, they were saying you don't need a waiver. You just should invoke compulsory licensing measures in each domestic uh, situation. And we've seen with Canada, for example, and the situation of biolease in Bolivia, that even a country in the global north is reluctant to issue a compulsory license. It's very difficult. It's rarely used. And usually the company on, uh, you know, whose license uh, or the company who were um, the the company who's going to be the recipient of the compulsory measures basically lawyers up and you know will drag you through court for for many many years right even a country like South Africa with a really great constitution has never issued a compulsory license on a pharmaceutical product in 100 years it's it's a really difficult thing to do so if we come back to the infamous controversial ill-informed op-ed by Bill Gates so Let's just take a few steps back the 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 foundation itself didn't about uh, it first was not supporting the relaxation of ip in this pandemic but then because of a lot of outrage and a lot of pressure and the fact that the vatican dr fauci nobel laureate former heads of state the ip academic community scientists activists i mean there's a broad movement of people. It's not just you know, a group of ex and activists and the South African and Indian government, hundred developing countries as well, supporting the TRIPS waiver. The foundation issued a statement saying that we need to actually deal with the issue of IP and there probably needs to be some relaxation. So they they did in about 10. Despite that, uh, Gates himself has continued to basically spew these arguments out around why he thinks, and he called it, uh, I think he called it a stupid or ridiculous or something. He gave it some description and said it's a stupid idea and that the world doesn't work that way and you don't have manufacturing partners and you need this and you need that. So every excuse um, that the pharmaceutical industry normally uses, these are in our view, the speaking points of the industry. These are all the excuses, and in some cases, very racist assumptions around what is possible and what is capable, you know, what what is possible and and what we are capable of. And I think it goes back to what Yamo had asked earlier about what is our manufacturing ability and capacity. So we think he's wrong in many respects, and we think that basically he has his own vested interest in why he needs to preserve and protect intellectual property claims. Because there is, there is an existential crisis that the industry is going through. That if you allow a waiver in this pandemic on these medical technologies, what happens with the next pandemic? What happens with life saving access to HIV, AIDS medication, or TB, or cancer medication? And remember, this industry is so profitable, right? Like we've seen in, this, in the last two years, nobody wants to let go of the IP or the control. Um, where there's greater sharing of technology, because it means it would, it would harm their bottom line. So, you know, many of us have critiqued Bill Gates. We think he's wrong, and we think that he will always be remembered as being on the wrong side of history. He has totally misjudged the situation. Um, and frankly, I would rather listen to Joseph Stiglitz, a Nobel laureate and economist, around uh, why the wave, Why way that could actually be more useful and would actually be more beneficial than you know listening to somebody like Bill Gates. And I think it goes also to the heart of power, right? If you have somebody like Bill Gates saying these things, using CNN platforms, it's really dangerous because here you have somebody who's unelected, he's not an elected leader of any nation. We can't hold him accountable. The only way you can respond to him is what, Triton to OPEC, but he has a seat in many different places. He has a lot of influence. The way he's using his power is not positive and it's not constructive. And his views about uh, the need for a TRIPS waiver, I think are really uninformed. And it's actually quite disrespectful to the 110 nations that have said, we have looked at the evidence, we've looked at this. This is why the TRIPS waiver will help and we need that. And, you know, frankly, Everybody kept on saying, you know, from that particular quarter that the TRIPS waiver won't make any material difference, it won't have an impact because you don't have companies in Africa, you don't have this, you don't have manufacturing, you don't have good practices, not so easy to make a vaccine, yet there's been so much opposition to the TRIPS waiver, right? So it's a bit ironic. That you would put so much time and energy and resources in blocking the waiver if you felt it would have no material difference then you should have just approved it in January. because because then you you know in in your own assessment according to people like ball it wouldn't change a single thing because nobody can do anything but implicit in their opposition right and why the eu has held out for so long is that they know it will make a difference. They know that there are manufacturing partners out there. They know that it will dramatically shift the landscape of access, not just in this pandemic, um, you know, but going forward. So let me stop there, otherwise we can talk about this like the whole day.
2: Yeah, um, I, I think we all know that it's quite possible that we could end this pandemic. Uh, at least, at the very least, we could manufacture our own vaccines. And I'm excited about the work of the People's Vaccine. The fact that so many people have come together both, you know, arguing for the TRIPS waiver, but also building capacity for that manufacturing. I've seen that there's work by the AU to also create regional standards so that when we begin manufacturing, countries don't have to do that work from scratch. So there's a lot of preparatory work, you know, in the motion so that we can make our own vaccines. I do want to move the conversation a bit more toward what's happening with travel bans, Omicron variants. And, you know, there's so many different talking points here, very different parts of analysis here. I'm wondering, from your side, you know, what do you think about this? Obviously, you've been speaking a lot about power and how all decisions in international relations are just consequences of power. Is that as simple as what we're seeing with this travel ban? And more importantly, you know, um, does this new variant move us closer to the end of the pandemic or not? I think many people have lots of different takes on things like.
1: Yeah, so. Obviously, I mean, I've, I've spoken about this, and, and I've said this repeatedly, that the travel bans are racist. They A knee-jerk reaction uh, in the middle of a pandemic to a variant that was reported on by South Africa, but certainly was not first discovered yet, now it turns out that it was actually circulating in the Netherlands and in parts of Europe, even before South Africa alerted the world to, to the emergence of the new variant. And the reason why we say that it's a racist, uneven uh, application of a travel ban is that the countries where the variant has been discovered are not necessarily included on the travel ban list, not even for the US, not even for the EU. So when you look at the countries that have been isolated, that are being discriminated against, they all happen to be in southern Africa. So you know, there's a certain irony that there are multiple. There's community transmission already. Is a travel ban you know, the most effective way of dealing with this? Our experts are saying not, because it's basically you at the level of community transmission, it's very, very difficult to contain it. What you can do is perhaps make sure that everybody's vaccinated in the world to, to to, to ensure that people are less at risk of infection, or if they are infected, that they basically don't have to be hospitalized. And that is why, at the heart of this, and the head of the UNAIDS has just written a piece in the last few days talking about vaccine inequity as a driver of variance. But we warned about this in 2020. We said, the longer you take to vaccinate everyone, everywhere, it's a key rallying call of the People's Vaccine Alliance. There's a reason for that slogan everyone, everywhere. Because if you don't do it at the same time, not Eleven months apart, or two and a half years apart. If you don't do it at the same time, you create the perfect breeding ground for new variants and for variants to circulate. So the travel bands are, we believe, an irrational response to what has happened in the last few weeks, and it's it's really racist because it really targets us. And instead of you know working with us and providing the global solidarity to work with the scientists that actually did this fantastic work to alert the world and to, you know, to show it, because scientists in Botswana and South Africa have been formidable, what we got was in turn, you know, was a, was a ban that was slapped on us. While we can show that some of us are fully vaccinated, so there's no reason to preclude somebody from traveling if they've already received two shots of a Pfizer vaccine. If they can give you a negative PCR result. What does Canada do in the last 48 hours? It says that PCR test results from South Africa, from other countries in Southern Africa, won't be accepted. So I mean, this is ridiculous. So our PCR test results won't be accepted. You must go to some third country somewhere, do a PCR test there, show them the result your vaccination status is not considered sufficient enough for them to allow them to allow you into parts of the global North. So a person from Canada with a double shot of Pfizer is somehow considered to be more immune and can travel than a person from Cape Town with a double shot of the Pfizer vaccine. And the only difference between us is our geography. I come from Africa and that person comes from North America. I mean, it's, it's so enraging, it's so ridiculous But the good thing about the travel ban, the only good thing about the travel ban, is it's united our country to basically highlight the issue of vaccine inequity at a global level. Our scientists, our doctors, our president, our community healthcare workers, our religious leaders, our activists, everybody's speaking with one voice to say, how dare you? How can you? how can you respond this way in the middle of a pandemic? And so it goes back to what you asked the first question about how we were promised all the solidarity in the beginning. And what did we say? These are just words. They are not enforceable and it's actually getting worse. So that's why I think that next year you'll we'll be having a show on treatment about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if we're, we're looking at um, some of the uh, proposals and some of the popular um, uh, general public responses to this um, you have calls for uh, mandatory vac- vaccination um, which has served some controversy um we'd like to know what you think about that um, and then we also have um, you know some issues uh, um, Maybe maybesamo will comment on it uh, about you know um, education and conspiracy theories but I mean, what do you think about um, the notion of mandatory jabs? I mean, I think something like just under half the South African population said they're not interested in, in getting a vaccine.
1: So it depends on which study you cite, because the studies by, actually, by Kate Alexander, and others actually show that there's a greater willingness to take the vaccine if the right factors um, are available. Transport is a huge issue. Uh, you know, the, the distance to the closest site, issue of side effects, whether somebody can get one jab or two jabs, uh, whether their peers are getting the vaccine, whether there's a vaccine mandate as well. So I think that the percentages and the different studies circulating can sometimes be misleading. It's certainly not true that half of the people don't want to take the vaccine. I think we've had um many issues that have uh you know, uh, where we've lost the momentum in our vaccine program, but but that is not the sense of the community or the majority of communities actually in South Africa and the right to care, for example, is doing fantastic work in rural facilities in in South Africa, where those communities are saying thank you, thank you for bringing the vaccine to us. It's also about, you know, are we taking vaccines to the people, are we allowing fertile ground for the anti-vax movement which is really aligned to organizations in the US that have been peddling a lot of misinformation and disinformation, and we saw this with the HIV AIDS crisis. So we're having to do treatment literacy, we're having to fight for supply visibility, we're having to fight for access, we're having to fight for fair pricing. So there's a lot of things happening in in South Africa around uh, uptake levels. And that is where vaccine mandates, I think, do have a role. And unfortunately, our government was, was basically sleeping on this issue, and it's only now that they've decided to set up a task team to look at whether government should actually adopt a policy of imposing vaccine mandates. And you know, the the, the thing about vaccine mandates is we already have vaccine mandates. You can't go to country X, Y, Z without the yellow fever vaccine certificate. You can't go to school without your measles vaccine certificate. So there are already vaccine mandates in the system for multiple conditions. This has become controversial and it's become a lightning rod because there's been a sense of, of individual liberties around, uh, you know, basically fueled by the anti-vax movement. People believe that they don't want to be told to wear masks, they don't want to be told that they have to take the vaccine. We have two universities in South Africa, leading universities, who have already adopted a resolution on vaccine mandates. You won't be able to return to class. Uh, or be a teacher in a class unless you are actually vaccinated. We now have one of the largest trade unions in South Africa doing a U-turn and now supporting vaccine mandates after the emergence of the new variant. And they've realized that if we don't actually scale up vaccination and get more people vaccinated, we are going to be isolated even further. Our economy is going to suffer and we're going to be decimated as a country uh, in terms of hospitalization as well as in, um, in terms of mobility and mortality. So... There is a debate around vaccine mandates. My own view is that it's about time. Um, If you want to go to a public space, if you want to go to a public school, public university, public places of worship, you need to be vaccinated. Uh, And and that does mean, however, like we did with the situation of ARVs, when there was a lot of disinformation and hesitancy, is that you actually have to invest in sharing information with communities and communicating uh, to people in a way in which they are the most comfortable, but we've had so much of secrecy and so much of um, uh, we've had so much of secrecy and minimal information sharing in a in one year, where we had political violence as well and a set of local government elections, uh, where drug companies have also been rolling out vaccines based on a press, you know press statements. Uh, and not sharing a lot of the data. And then we've also had the stopping and the starting of our vaccine program. We were going to use AstraZeneca, then we decided uh, to pause that for certain reasons, then we started using J&J, then we paused that because of the issue of blood clots in the US, and then that was restarted. So there's a lot of confusion in communities. Which vaccine should I take? Should I take J&J? Should I take you know, Pfizer? Because that way I'll get two doses. Remember, we don't have a booster uh, approval or authority as yet. So yeah, it's a a complex uh, set of of factors, but uh, my own view, and based on the experts we've spoken to, is that the vaccine mandate could turn turn the tide and could actually have have an impact. But we're only dealing with this now because we are months behind uh, a a vaccine program that you started, for example, in, in January. So where countries have already decided on vaccine mandates, they've done that ahead of us because they were obviously ahead in terms of their, of their own vaccine program. I mean, I was supposed to travel to Geneva for the ministerial conference, for the WTO meeting. And one of the requirements was you had to be double vaccinated, you had to prove your vaccine certificate, you had to take a PCR test, but you wouldn't be allowed to enter a cafe, a shop, the WTO, or building any public space in Geneva right? Without proof that you were vaccinated. And I think, I really think that's that's where the world is, is heading now.
2: I've got a question, uh, Fatima, about, you know, bottom-up vaccination drives and um, why we aren't seeing uh, a lot of those community-driven initiatives. I mean, impopo had a lot of that and you've seen that they've caught a higher vaccination rate as a result, free state coming in second. Uh, so I'm, I'm in the free state and we have a lot of these community initiatives like You know, I work with an NGO. We work with homeless and impoverished people. We had two months of workshops just to speak with homeless people in the area about vaccinations to make sure that even when they're receiving a vaccine, it's like um, it's their agency. It's their own individual choice. You know, uh, I mean, I'm very vocal as well on Twitter about a lot of the top-down approaches. Like, I'm the expert. Listen to me. Don't listen to this random person on Twitter who's not an expert. I'm like, yeah, that's totally going to convince someone to get vaccinated when you talk down on them. Uh, and, you know, I'm also 23 years old, so I'm a young person. I speak with a lot of young people. I'd say most of the young people I know are not vaccinated and probably won't even get vaccinated even after a vaccine mandate. They would just stay away from those public places or, you know, I don't know, bootleg or try their best to, 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 to avert the top down. And I, I do see the, you know, white people in Cape Town sort of cupping the U.S. But there's also a really strong, supposedly conscious we're against pharmaceutical corporations' movement as well, and it is empowered by what you've said a lot in this call about some of the stuff these pharmaceutical companies have done in the past and the way that they're behaving right now. So I, I wonder—I guess the snapshot question here is: um, We saw the treatment action campaign, you know, during the, that time of AIDS denialism. But are we are we seeing a TAC-level vaccination drive right now, or are we seeing more of a top-down? We're experts listen to us we know what's good for you um you guys are wrong on this issue sort of uh you have to listen to us Where, where's the tac solidarity you know working together in communities building support for something like a vaccine just like we built support for arvs uh you know work, working with I, I, I sort of wonder if uh, the activist approach a lot of us have taken is too top down on this and that obviously feeds into the vaccine mandate Kind of conversation i wonder what your thoughts are on that you know is there a bottom-up movement how do we build one
1: so i think there's a combination and i think there's a lot of uh, faith leaders community organizations sex worker rights organizations hiv aids organizations even organizations doing work with refugees and migrants and homeless people that are doing the bottom-up work i think it's just that the media doesn't really report about them or talk about them uh for example the work that right to the right to key is doing or the Orem Institute. So I think that it's been compressed within the space of a year. We're trying to get to 80% vaccination coverage within five or six months. That's an impossible task for almost all, you know, even advanced healthcare systems. We do have a dual healthcare system. I mean, the vaccine program was rolled out as a single vaccine program, which has also created, um, you know, different elements of uh, access uh, difficulties. Um, And I think you're right. I mean, I think the Limpopo example, you know, was something that surprised everybody. But Limpopo themselves said that there's so much distrust in the community and there's so much hesitancy. And what we need is not for politicians to speak to people. So your point about top down, you've got to bring in community leaders and you've got to bring in people that communities trust. Um, That's made obviously more difficult if you have the chief justice of the country know saying that the vaccine is the devil if you have groups that are so aligned to these us anti-vax groups i mean the panda um i mean there's various people who are quite active on on twitter on the internet on TikTok, who you who are using social media to create the hesitancy and to build up the anti-vax movement what we've been told is that people are using whatsapp the voice notes which basically say don't go take the vaccine. This is what's gonna to happen to you. These are the side effects. So it's quite a different time to when we did the work in, on HIV AIDS in, um, you know, I worked for the ATOL project and did a lot of the legal cases for the TSC because we're dealing with um, a very sophisticated social media space and how you intervene in that space and how you get young people to actually listen to different messages without coming off as paternalistic, I think is is different to to the work we did then. And I think you're right. I mean, with with HIV, we had years and years to basically build up treatment literacy while we were fighting for access to vaccines. So it's a very different situation that we're in with COVID because the timelines are, are, are so compressed. It doesn't also help that the that the work that the Department of Health was supposed to do around better communication, totally agree with you about how do we communicate with people of different age groups, different uh, geographies, different class as well, different, you know, some are university users, some are not, for example, Um, that you had a department that has had three different ministers of health. You had the senior leadership, as well as the former minister implicated in corruption allegations around the very contract that was supposed to communicate around COVID nineteen, and so you know, there's also the 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 internal um, deficiencies within I think our, our health system and the Department of Health that has meant that grassroots groups and faith organisations and others have we've actually had to step in to do the work of government around uh, vaccine literacy and I, you know, frankly, I think that they also underestimated uh, that there would be this kind of pushback by the anti-vax movement. And they've been too uh, soft, I think, on some of these groups in, in terms of spreading disinformation, even though we've passed laws around COVID disinformation and misinformation. They actually haven't really used all of the power available to them to to basically shut it down.
0: All right. Well, maybe um, kind of moving towards a, a, a close here. Um... You know, there's there's a lot of um, things that could be done differently and should have been done differently. Um, you know, we've discussed a lot of that uh, today. Um, we talked about the um, intellectual property waiver at the World Trade Organization. Um, there's obviously hoarding of um, vaccines by the rich countries. Uh, they're opting for their booster shots right now. When uh, you know so many people in so many other low-income countries uh, don't have access to vaccines. Uh, obviously, there's education and, and awareness raising, um, not just about vaccine apartheid, but uh, um, you know, contend- contesting with um, skepticism um, and conspiracy theories. <laughs> um, if you were to say, you know what what is the real how much is this about intellectual property and resource hoarding and profiteering um, and versus you know um, you know building up the capacity to manufacture um, you know really what what do you think needs to be done and and what are the top priorities um, in order to to um, bring this pandemic to a just
2: close yeah to end the pandemic yeah
1: yeah i mean unfortunately i don't don't know if the end is near in fact i think it's just going to continue for a while because i think that the entire response to this pandemic has been mismanaged from day one so i i don't know if there's anything you can do to actually end the pandemic that what you could do to mitigate the consequences of it um is to continue to invest in strengthening health systems so that people can still get their treatment and services while we're dealing with this pandemic which has, you know really ruptured access to other treatment, cancer or ARVs for example um but is to ensure that more people can get their first shot you know in an expeditious way and then the second shot particularly healthcare workers and people who are over 70 and people with comorbidities and so I think the the prioritization of, of which groups, including and I think this is you know this is part of the problem about excluding certain communities like refugees and migrants. Most countries have just not prioritized that, or people who are homeless without documentation, for example. Right. Um, the trips waiver is an essential part of a package of interventions. It's obviously not you know the only solution, but you need to resolve that or expeditiously deal with that because that is. Um, I think a critical part of being able to say, we've got to suspend IP in this pandemic. And we can't all afford to be pursuing compulsory licenses in each of our country on every single supplier of every single technology. So, so the IP reckoning and the IP issue has to be resolved and it has to be resolved fast. I mean, one of our demands is that the WTO should just pass the waiver in a virtual meeting. We don't need an in-person ministerial conference. You don't need to wait. You can actually do this if you really had the, really the political world. Linked to the TRIPS waiver is that while we are waiting for that process to be finalized, you need more manufacturing. And you can only have more manufacturing if you issue multiple non-exclusive licenses to as many partners as possible, including the mRNA hubs, and for companies to basically stop playing God. So all of these licensing deals and arrangements is still rooted in this notion of volunteerism and the company exercising full control about the terms and condition. And that's not sustainable. That's not going to work, particularly you know, as, as we're now starting to talk about treatment. So segmenting markets, dividing geographies, you know, having the haves and the have-nots, which is basically about it, right, first-class citizens and second-class citizens is, is actually not going to take us out of this pandemic and what we saw with this variant is that you're actually going to prolong it um and and you know just finally i mean what we need to end is is just this like racism and the um you know the exclusion and the discrimination and isolation you can't you can't you can't mitigate the consequences of this pandemic if you're going to isolate half of the world and think that that is going to that is going to be the thing that keeps you safe. So the experts are saying vaccinate everybody, make sure there's mask mandates, not just vaccine mandates. You've got to invest more in PPE and diagnostic capabilities. Um, So yeah, I think it's a a package of things. Uh, But at the heart of it, obviously, because I'm a medicine access activist, is that you've got to topple the IP regime that is currently being uh, the biggest blocker of, you know, trying to even scale up uh, supplies and, you know, with the booster shots being administered, that tells you what's going to happen, right? It's not a one shot vaccine program. We're going to be doing this for years. If we can't even get our first shot, I, I don't even know when we're going to be able to get our second and third shot. So, yeah, we have a real crisis of, of, of inequality on our hands.
2: Yeah, I think final thoughts from my side, Mike, especially listening to Fatima talk, it does sound like we have a global alliance in agreement that intellectual property in relation to medicine that's necessary for people to sustain life is unjust. More than it being unjust is simply an act of power rooted in you know trying to keep people who are brown and black like us under in this part of the world. And everyone listening to the podcast, I think, We know that we need to rise up against this. The Health Justice Initiative, Rights to Care, there's organizations around the world that are fighting this. Thank you for speaking about them, Fatima. I'd imagine that you should also get involved in whatever local community you're in. If you have access to a vaccine, engage with people in your area. You know, we're only going to vaccinate everyone here in South Africa, across the continent, when vaccines are made available, if we work together. I do believe a bottom-up approach will be way more effective at spreading the vaccine. And uh, finally, from my side, if we're going to take down the tech empire. We should definitely also take down this intellectual property empire related to medicine. And I'm excited for that. Great.
0: Yeah, so, all right. So I, I guess that's a wrap. Um, Fatima, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you on. It
1: was a pleasure to be speaking to you in Tiyama this afternoon.